Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they'd been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence, and have found no basis for for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. With one voice they cried out, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them, but they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, Why, what crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there held insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly. For we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. For the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance, watching these things. Shall we pray together? Lord God, the things that we have just read together are the most important things that have happened in the history of the world. We pray that in your mercy you'll give us ears to hear and hearts to believe what you have shown us through your word and through the actions of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And may we be able more truly and fully to glorify him for what he has done for us through what we hear now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, some meals he never forgets. Uh, perhaps last night's meal will never be forgotten for its quality and quantity. I have in mind another meal. A meal at Festival Balti in Birmingham. <laughs> Festival Balti. What a great night. I met Sam off the train. She was living in Leicester and I was living in Birmingham. And I took her nervously to Festival Balti restaurant. And there I proposed and she said no. So I proposed again and seeing how things were going to go, she said yes, right. (laughs) And uh, we became engaged to be married. I remember it well. It's a meal I'll never forget. A chicken vindaloo still brings tears to my eyes. <laughs> there are some meals you never forget. There are some meals that shape your life forever. Festival Balti, a very important one for me. But come back with me to Exodus chapter 11 and 12. Now this is a meal you really would remember. Chapter 11, we, we read that God is going to bring uh, uh, judgment on the, on the gods of Egypt and um, every firstborn son in Egypt is going to die. But God says, I'll make provision for you, to Moses. He says, for your people, for my people in the land, I'll make provision. Here's what you do. You get a lamb. It's a perfect lamb. You tether it outside the house. Keep it there for a while. If, if there's nothing wrong with the lamb, on the night I tell you, you slaughter the lamb. You take some of its blood, get a plant called hyssop, dip, dip, dip it in and, and spread it on the lintels of your door. And then when my angel, who is going to bring death to the firstborn of every son in Egypt, comes, he'll pass over your house. Because a death has already taken place. And you are to eat that lamb, you are to eat all of it, every bit, apart from the bones. Pick them clean, sit together as a family and eat that lamb. And I will lead you safely out of Egypt now imagine sitting with your family that evening if you're a firstborn son in an Israelite family and you know this is happening you know that tonight is the night you know the angel of death is coming through every firstborn son if there's not blood on the door every firstborn son dies 
because such is God's judgment on the gods of the Egyptians. And there you are, and Strictly Come Dancing comes on, and your dad sits down to watch it. He said, Dad, where the lad? All right, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. But you know, Russell's on. <laughs> dad! Please. And eventually Eddie goes, and he's got the knife, and the blood goes on the door, and you oh, I'm safe. And in the morning you wake up, and there is wailing throughout Egypt, but you're still alive. Now, that's not a meal you would forget. And God says to his people in Exodus 12, this is to be the first day of your year. And on the first day of the year, you are to eat this meal again in remembrance. And you're to eat it with your belt tucked into your clothes tucked into your belt, ready to, you know, reminding you that you are ready to flee out of Egypt. And you will eat this meal together to remember what I have done in setting you free. So come to Luke 22. Because that is the meal that Jesus sits down with his friends to eat. Luke chapter 22 is an incredible chapter. It starts off with uh, that important marker. It was the time for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The time was approaching. And you see people making preparations for the feast, but they're not the preparations you'd expect. The chief priests and the Pharisees are looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. And then, verse 3, they're presented with it. Jesus comes to them and says... What will you give me? They say money. He says, fine. I'll betray him. But Jesus is making his own preparations for the Passover too. He uh, says to his friends, right, we need to get this sorted. So um, they say, where should we go? Verse 9 says, right, this is what you do. Go into the city. You'll meet a man. He's carrying a jar of water. He'll meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he takes you to, the teacher... Ask, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room where everything is ready and prepared. Make preparations there. So in verse 1, verse 7, and verse 15, we see Jesus is getting ready to eat the Passover. And even though it looks as though the chief priests and Judas might be in charge, actually it's Jesus who's in charge. He is making preparations. He knows what he's doing. So that, verse 22 he even makes, makes it clear that he knows that someone's going to betray him. This is all what's planned. Verse 21, verse 22, he knows he's going to be betrayed. Even Judas is doing what Jesus wants him to do, even though he's responsible for it, even though he will suffer for it. This is all the plan. Jesus is in control of all of it. From the man carrying a jar of water, just as he happens to be going as, as the disciples come into Jerusalem, it's all Jesus' plan. It's all Jesus' plan for the Passover. Remember that meal. The lamb dies instead of the firstborn son. And verses 14 to 18, a a climactic verses where Jesus, we we read, when the hour came, this is the moment. Jesus and his apostles recline at the table and he says to them, I've been waiting for this moment. I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This is the last one. This is the last Passover before the kingdom of God. The last one I'll eat. In fact, we get to the point in verse 17 where we uh, read, sorry, verse 18, where we find that this is my last glass of wine, guys. This is it. I'm on my way. It happens now. It's no coincidence that it's the feast of the Passover because what we'll see is that Jesus 
who is no ordinary victim, a victim entirely in control of his own destiny, who goes to a cross as a lamb. So look with me at chapter at 22, verse 37, where Jesus says this, It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Jesus is about to be numbered among the transgressors. We'll come back to that reference from the Old Testament. But Jesus is going there for a reason. To fulfill his destiny. And his destiny is shaped like that. His destiny is to be numbered with the worst of the transgressors. A moment of terrible darkness is coming. But in that darkness, a number of things shed light on what is going on. So flick forward with me to chapter 23, verse 35. Because a number of... um, In fact, we won't get that far forward. Let's let's just uh, come back to verse 34. As Jesus is crucified at the place of the skull with a criminal on either side, numbered amongst the transgressors, as he, as he predicted. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And they got on with dividing up his clothes. And then as they don't know what they're doing, they reveal to us what's really going on by what they say. And you get two pairs of statements that, that clarify what's happening in the most incredible way. So verses 35 and 39 go together, and 36 through 38, you have uh, the soldiers and the, the Roman sign above the cross that mock Jesus, the people who don't understand what's happening, and yet somehow it is that they explain what's happening. These are what Carson calls in scandalous, the ironies of the cross, or some of them. Say verse 36, the soldiers come, they mock him. And say, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And above his cross is nailed in three languages a sign that says, this is the king of the Jews. And yet, this is an enthronement. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, this is the moment at at which... He is given a name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. For this moment, his obedience at the cross, this great king rules forever over everyone. And one day, every eye will see him, and they will look on the one they have pierced. And every knee will bow. They mock, they say, if you're a king, save yourself. But Jesus has shown in the previous chapter that because he is a king, because he is control, in control, he has come here. This is his purpose. This is proof of his power. His power to resist sin to the very end. His power to conquer sin and death. But it's the Jewish leaders and the criminal who say basically the same thing as each other and show that they are in the same boat together, who really help to get even further to the heart of what's going on. 
the Jewish leaders and the people mock him. They stand there watching and they say, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The criminal, verse 39, does the same thing. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Save yourself. If you are the Christ, save yourself. He saved others. Why can't you save yourself? You are a loser. You are useless. You have failed. And Jesus' words still hang in the air. Forgive them. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. Think about the meal he's just eaten. The meal in which a lamb died instead of a firstborn son. The lamb saved others, but it couldn't save itself. Here comes Jesus. This is how he saves others. By not saving himself. And of the two criminals, one of them really understands, verse 40. And just like his friend, he asks Jesus to save him. There are two requests for salvation in verses 39 and 40. And one of them is sarcastic. And one of them brings salvation. The extraordinary thing is that Jesus actually does save one of the criminals. Verse 40, save yourself and us. Verse 41 at verse 43, Jesus makes it clear he has saved one of the two. He has actually rescued him. Today, you will be with me in paradise. The criminal recognizes what's going on. Verse 40, he says to his friend, don't you fear God. You're under the same sentence. We are punished justly. We're getting what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Nothing wrong. He knows what he did. He sheds light on the situation by understanding that this man is perfect. There is nothing wrong with him. He has done nothing wrong. And he recognises that somehow, even though he doesn't understand how, this man could hold the key to somehow making all the wrong things in his life right. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, yep, that's now. Yes, I will. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And Luke tells us, verse 44, it's now about the sixth hour, that's midday. The hottest, sunniest hour of the day. The sun directly overhead. And there are three hours of complete darkness. Now, if you know the story of the plagues in the first ten chapters of the book of Exodus, you know that the last plague before the death of the firstborn was the plague of darkness. The plagues ramp up, they get worse and worse. Pharaoh starts to crumble and then when the plagues are taken away, he says, nah, no way, I'm hard, God can't take me on, uh, you can't go. And then there is the plague of darkness. And the darkness is everywhere except in Goshen where the Israelites lived. The whole land of Egypt is dark, apart from over God's people. Have a look. Where is it dark here? The darkness is over the people of God. It's over the land. The whole land. There are no spots of light. 
It's midday. And God's people, the ones who were spared the darkness in Egypt, are the ones who sit under the light, under the darkness. It is now time for judgment to come on Israel. And you know what comes after the plague of darkness, don't you? The death of the firstborn. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. It's what happens. But it is not the death of the Israelite firstborn, but the death of God's one and only, his firstborn and only beloved son dies. Judgment comes over Israel, but it falls on Jesus. There are all kinds of things in the Old Testament that point forward to this moment, this pin-sharp moment in human history where everything converges, where that defines everything in everyone's life. This moment. And the Old Testament points to it in huge numbers of ways. One example is with Abraham in the book of Genesis. Genesis 22. Where God says to Abraham, verse 2, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Afterwards, God says to him, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. That's the thing that brackets it. Your your only son, whom you love. Your only son. And, And he says it twice. Your son, your only son. I guess everyone who's ever been to the FA Cup final knows John chapter 3 verse 16. Someone's always got a banner. I don't know how to get it in. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now perhaps you know the story of Genesis 22. It's um, full of reverses. God takes, uh, God tells Abraham to go and do this. He says go to this mountain in the region of Moriah. Abraham goes up the mountain. He puts the wood on top of Isaac. And he carries himself, he carries the flame and the knife. You can imagine how that conversation went. Okay, Isaac, let's go for a walk. We're going to go and sacrifice. Uh, and they're halfway there. And Isaac turns to his dad and says, um, so I've got the wood and you've got the knife and the fire. We haven't got a sacrifice. And Abraham says, and it's recorded in Genesis 22, he says, don't worry, Isaac, God will provide a sacrifice. Now, I don't know what Isaac said next, but... I bet he said something like, "What well, you mean, Dad, like he provided me? And you can imagine the look on Abraham's face. Yes, boy. Exactly like that. And they trudge on up the mountain. And then Abraham takes the wood off Isaac and he puts it on the, on the altar. And then he takes Isaac and puts Isaac on the wood. And he gets the knife and he raises it. And then suddenly, 
the voice comes. Don't do it. Abraham, don't do this terrible thing. And he looks. And there in the bush is a sheep caught by its horns in a thicket. And God says, I've provided a sheep for the sacrifice instead of your son. And so Abraham and Isaac sacrifice that sheep. And God spares Abraham's one and only son. And do you know where that happened? On the mountain of Moriah. Where Jerusalem was built. On the hill where Jesus, nailed to a cross, was slammed into the ground and left to die and rot. And the God who provided a substitute for Abraham's one and only son gives his one and only son instead. And so in Luke 53, we have all the echoes of the death of the firstborn. The fact that it's at the time of the Passover, the fact that Jesus points to the fact that this is the fulfillment of the Passover. We have the darkness at midday over the land, followed by the death of God's one and only. The son who in chapter 3, we're told, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is the one who falls under God's judgment. The one who has done nothing wrong. The one who is perfect. In the place of God's people. Which makes us able to understand then. What happens in verse 45. The sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now that's no ordinary curtain. That's not like the robe of Samuel that Saul tore as he begged Samuel to come back and go with him. That is a curtain that thick. The width of a man's hand. Woven in one piece from top to bottom. Split from top to bottom. And that curtain is the curtain that kept Israel safe. Because that is the curtain that guarded off the holy of holies in the temple. You know that room where the priest can go in once a year wearing bells? That room where it is not safe to go because there is the presence of the living God. That curtain ripped in half. And that information on its own, you think, well, what does that mean? Is this the destruction of the temple? The the fact that God has deserted his people? He has gone from Jerusalem and it's dark. The curtain is ripped. There's no need for it because he's not there. No, the other things that are going on in the story point us, point us to the fact that it's not because God is gone, but because now people like you and me have access to him. Come with me to the passage that Jesus was speaking about when he said uh, he was numbered amongst the transgressors and this must be fulfilled in me. It's Isaiah chapter 53. And this explains what is in Jesus' mind as he goes to his cross. What does he think he is doing? Let's start in verse 4. 
Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus believed that's what he was fulfilling when he went to the cross. That as he was pierced, it was for me. For my rebellion, which is like the sin of divination. For your rebellion, which is like the sin of divination and idolatry. He was crushed and bruised and beaten and killed. To bring us peace with God. So that you and I no no longer need a temple in the curtain that thick. To keep us from the terrifying holiness of God not because God has become less holy but because your rebellion has been dealt with and Luke gives us a brilliant illustration of what this is like at the beginning of chapter 23 in Luke as he goes to Pilate's uh, court where Pilate consistently demonstrates himself to be a great man by saying he's done nothing wrong so I'll have him punished and then let go the crowd say crucify him and release Barabbas crucify him and release Barabbas the murderer the insurrectionist the rioter the one who rightly gets a cross release him And crucify Jesus. Imagine yourself for just a moment into Barabbas' position. Okay, it's hot. 
in the day and it is cold at night in your cell and you have no contact with the outside world apart from the tray that gets shoved under the door with bread and water to keep you alive long enough that you can really suffer on your cross. And you know that you've really done it. And what you're getting, you deserve. And in the darkness of your chamber, every day you hear footsteps and you think, will these be the last footsteps I hear? Is this the jailer come to lead me away? And one day you hear the turn of a key in the lock. And you see a guard. And he says, come with me. Do you think you could stand? Well, you get up and you, and you walk to the door on knees that feel like jelly. And he leads you out of the dark dungeon into the sunlight. And you blink and try and take in what you can see. And you realize you're in the street. And you turn around and you say to him, where's the cross? And he says, well, we don't have one for you. Jesus took it. So, so what now? Well, you're free. You are free. And so you stand there in the street and you think, what is this? Another man has taken my cross and I am free. Can you imagine what that must have been like for him? And yet for you, it is so much greater. It is not the agonies of a torturous Roman execution that Jesus has freed you from but the horror of the wrath of God and he suffered it for you and he suffered it for me and you are free there is no cross for you it is gone another took it that is what the cross means. But that sheds a certain amount of light on us, does it not? Who am I in this story? I'm Barabbas. When I was growing up, my favourite book was The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, before I was a Christian even. I just, it was a, it's, a, it's a magical book, isn't it? And, and in that book, there are four children, Peter, Edmund, Susan and Lucy. They go into this magical world, they meet a magical lion, and one of them is a traitor, and his name is Edmund. And one of them is a great high king, and his name is Peter. And Peter is valiant, and he fights a wolf and kills it, and is a hero. And Edmund's a little toad. Edmund goes off, and he betrays Aslan. And he is sneaky, and whiny, and pathetic, and full of envy, weakness, and cowardice. And in that story, to free Edmund from the evil witch's rightful claim on his blood, Aslan 
the great lion, the creator of Narnia, gives up his own life. Now, when I was a little boy, I was Peter. I read the story, I was Peter. Of course I was Peter, a hero, wolf killer. But then you realise, don't you, I'm not Peter. I am not the hero of the story. I am Barabbas. And there's no room for pride. There's no room for a sense that somehow I deserve anything apart from condemnation. And yet what I get in Jesus is that I am treated like an honoured son. So when we had Ollie baptised and he was signed with the sign of the cross, it hit me like a thunderbolt. God gave his only son so that my son could go free. And I love my son. And God loves his son. But that is how much he loves you. That he gave his son so that he could have you. And that is the mystery and the majesty and the awesomeness of the cross. Everything we said this morning about God's majesty remains true. As Paul says in the book of Romans, he remains just and the one who justifies. He remains holy and pure and morally upright. And yet he can still be the one who accepts people like you and like me. And the mystery of it is that he was prepared to do that at the cost of everything. There's nothing left for us to do but praise him for that. And thank him. Let's pray. Gracious God, we genuinely cannot understand how it is that you can love us like this. It makes no sense to us. Because in the end, we don't deserve it. But you gave your only son that whoever believes in him might have eternal life, might have the right to become a son of God themselves. And Lord, we simply bow our heads in awe and in wonder at that. And pray that in your mercy, the truth of that would increasingly shape the way we live, the way we think about ourselves and the way that we think about you. Forgive us that so often we feel that you are tight-fisted and that we have to prize blessings from your hand when you are the one who willingly gave us heaven's greatest treasure. And forgive us when we think of ourselves as the heroes of the story, when really we, like Edmund, like Barabbas, are freed entirely at your kindness. Say, Lord, take us and shape us 
with this incredible truth. And may we marvel at this mystery for all of eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've got some good time um, to spend in groups in just a moment. Um, I'll leave the the leaders to find appropriate places. um, And uh, if not, I will guide you in the the right way. One group will stay here. But I thought it would be good. Could you turn to page 14 of your booklets? One of those uh, great hymns uh, by Isaac Watts. We're going to sing that uh, in just a moment. Why don't you just cast your eyes down? I guess you'll know it off by heart, but I think it very helpfully uh, summarises some of the, some of which we've just been learning. So why don't you just uh, read those words as we get ready, musicians, and uh, and then we're going to sing that together.
Dima. <laughs>